Welcome to episode three of the Thrive Beyond Divorce podcast. My guest today is Chrissy Leontius, who's a specialist family lawyer and domestic violence lawyer. Just a word before we start. If you're at home and you feel unsafe with the person who may be putting you at risk, please be very careful about where you choose to listen to or watch this episode. Make sure that you're somewhere safe where the perpetrator can't see what you're doing because you could possibly be putting yourself at risk. Um, Chrissy, um, I wonder if you could just give us a brief introduction about yourself and then I'll just run through some of the things that we're going to cover today. Hi, thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. So um, as you indicate, I am a domestic violence lawyer and a family lawyer. Um, what we do here at Cleon Legal is quite unique because we practice all our family law matters um, and domestic violence matters through a domestic violence lens. So we very much are considered all, all, all the different aspects of domestic violence and how that may impact on a matter um, and any behaviours that either party are displaying in a matter. And we also run through our matters through a trauma-informed lens as well. So we're very considerate of the ways we have our office set up um, in order to create a safe space for people to tell their stories, to be vulnerable, to feel safe, to ensure that um, their, their trauma isn't triggered because when that happens, they may not be able to recall um, memories or feel safe to share the stories. That's, that's really important for me as their lawyer to know. Um, we also work holistically with other domestic violence services as well. We really think about um, domestic violence as a whole and not just their immediate legal impact, but the social um, and safety impacts of our clients as well to really um, support them through a very difficult time. Thanks, Chrissy. So one of the things I'd really like to cover with you today, and it's really our focus, is how the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic and particular um, the sheltering at home or isolation mm -hmm. directives are impacting on domestic violence and victims of domestic violence. So, um, you know, just having a look, I, I've seen that Google's seen a 75% increase in the number of searches for domestic violence, um, yeah. but there's been a decline, decline in calls to domestic violence hotlines. And mm -hmm. I think that's um, something that isn't indicative that there's a decline in domestic violence. Um, it, it may actually be because victims can't actually safely contact hotlines. Absolutely. We know, for example, that the time for a victim of domestic and family violence is the time of separation because there's a sense of loss of control of the perpetrator and it puts them at most risk of being killed. So when we look at it, when they're in the, the same space, living under the same roof, um, if the perpetrator was to find out that the victim was trying to access um, safety advice in relation to leaving the relationship, leaving the home or obtaining legal advice, that could certainly put them at much higher risk um, of increased violence, abuse or even death. So it certainly makes sense that we're seeing a decline in victims reaching out for help because they are in isolation, they are trapped and they would be perceiving that that's much uh, very unsafe for them to be reaching out in the event that the perpetrator heard or learned of um, that attempt to escape. Yeah, and, and we might talk a bit later about some of the ways that victims can obtain help during this sure. time. But I really just want to focus at the moment on the risk factors because you've, you've just really highlighted um, mm -hmm. that the situation in which people find themselves at the moment is yeah. heightening those risk factors. Um, and um, I, I just wonder if we could just um, talk about some of those. So isolation mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. 
Well, isolation is always a risk factor and it's a behaviour that we see perpetrators use to have power and control over victims to keep them away from their support networks, their family, their friends, even work. Um, as well. And now we've got the, the, the situation where that's still the case for per perpetrator tries to use isolation, but now it's also been forced upon them as well that they are in the home, away from physically away from their contacts, from their support network, and away from um, work colleagues as well who may be able to pick up on a daily basis that something's the matter, they could ask them a question, or the victim has the ability to speak to other people. So isolation is a huge risk factor at the moment. We're seeing people trapped under the same roof as their abusers, and this is just really unprecedented. It's a very dangerous time for victims of domestic and family violence. And um, as you said, not, not having those co-workers every day noticing that something's wrong, um, where they might have been aware that there's a situation at home, but the, the flip side of that is where the, the victim's never spoken out, and there's no way of people seeing that there's been a sudden change and um, that isolation could be really increased and there's, there's mm. no way that someone can just go to a family member or a friend and have a chat um, and, um, you know, perpetrators potentially using the isolation to, mm. you know, even more closely monitor the movements of their victims. I think perpetrator surveillance has never been so high or so dangerous before. It's increased that surveillance over their, their victim, their spouse, the partner has certainly increased. Yeah, and and you talked about that, the, the power and control and that surveillance. And what do you mm -hmm. think COVID-19's impact on that is? It's exasperating and it's certainly increasing it and, and it's manifesting in such a dangerous way now. Um, Whereas before the victim may have had an opportunity, like we said before, to go out, seek services, speak to people, remove themselves from that home, the, the isolation now is just this increased risk factor for them. So it's certainly having a, a massive um, impact on them. Yeah. And um, we know that uh, the most serious forms of domestic violence are really underpinned by um, this need for a perpetrator to have power and control and that mm. that's really at the crux of domestic violence. Um, I, in an earlier podcast I did, um, we talked about the locus of control and how people are really feeling right now that they've lost control over what they can yeah. do, their movements. Um, there's mm -hmm. so much uncertainty. And I, I wonder if you had any comment to make about how that loss of control generally in life might be translating with domestic sure. violence. Yeah, and I think it's a good example because often, and this is why we can never label domestic violence as... Um, um, behavioural or psychological, because we know perpetrators that use domestic violence are using it in the home. They're not using those violent, intimidating behaviours in the workplace or out in public. So they're choosing those behaviours. Um, so that that's what we know about domestic and family violence, power and control. The power and control is over their spouse. They're not necessarily using that in other parts of their life. But now if they do have a sense of a disempowerment because they've lost their job or they're just feeling that general disempowerment that most of us are feeling because COVID's made everything feel so out of control. But then now that their behaviours to have power and control will increase over the victim, it is giving them more of a sense or a desire to have power and control. So that could be another driver. It's just another way of looking at it that it certainly could be increasing their sense of ownership. Um, of their spouse and partner and wanting that power of control in the home. And when we look at it through a gendered lens as well, um, you know, and male violence against female, that sense of their, their female spouses being possession, 
but that's another way that we can analyze it as well as that stronger sense of I want control of you um, and I, I'm entitled to have that control over you as well. Chrissy, um, working from home, we're, we're all doing, and now we have um, home learning thrown in the mix mm. um, and a lot of, lot of potential there for, um, for conflict, loss of control and, and the lack of the ability to, for someone to um, mm. take a, a, a pause outside of that situation and yeah. get themselves into a safe space for someone to simmer down. Um, how have you found that COVID-19 has changed the ability or ways in which victims seek help from you? It's becoming much more difficult. We found before in the past when they were still living under the same roof and they were coming to us for domestic violence um, related advice, they could contact us in their lunch break at work or on the drive to school or the drive home from school or some other pickups where they had some safe time um, away from the perpetrator, away from the home. But now we're seeing logistically, it's very difficult for them, for victims to be able to contact us safely because they're working from home, they're living under the same roof. They're not leaving the home. They don't have that away time where they can pick up the phone or get on their e-work email safely without being under that surveillance. So it's certainly driving. Working from home is, I think, um, a huge inhibition for people to access justice and access service as well. So this is an access to justice and a social justice issue as well. Now working from home has had a flow on effect um, in the way people access justice. Yeah, and you can imagine if, if someone is a um, stay-at-home parent, uh, and the other parent is now working from home, or yeah. uh, then that home was previously the victim's safe space for at least yeah. a chunk of the day. Now they're with their perpetrator 24-7. Yeah. Um, and yeah. they just that fight, flight or freeze response must be so heightened in those victims right now. And um, I, I wonder if we could just talk about the services and the options that are available for those people because um, I wouldn't want victims to think that they can't get help right now. So um, if you could talk to some of the options sure. that are available, at least in Queensland. Yeah. Absolutely. We do want victims to know that help is still available. Our courts in Queensland are still um, running. Um, albeit they're doing it virtually as well. Domestic violence services are still open. And I know the one here in Townsville, they're still doing face-to-face -face contact. And I imagine in Brisbane it would be similar, particularly in very um, urgent situations, there would be face-to-face -face available. Our women's legal services are still operating. Yes, operating virtually, but that service is still available. Um, the courts, like I said, the courts are still open. You can still apply for a domestic violence order. The police are still taking out domestic violence orders as well. So justice and um, the, the legal process is still there. It's just we need to work out different ways of people being able to access it and accessing it safely. Um, the police have also introduced a text message service for non-urgent matters. And I, I can give that phone number as well. So if you're in, um, you need some police assistance or advice, but again, I impress upon you that it's for non-urgent matters, you can discreetly text 0437 131 444 and that's to the Queensland Police. Um, Could you just repeat that number for us again, Chrissy? It's 0437 131 444. And there's also um, triple zero, which is 
if anyone is ever feeling unsafe, you should definitely call triple zero. Do not hesitate. Um, People, I think, Mm. uh, sometimes victims have had their self-esteem so eroded that they think maybe maybe my situation is not bad enough. Please don't ever think that. If you are in danger, your children are in danger, please call triple zero. If you can't speak, um, there's actually a service the police have where if um, the there is no answer to the operator's greeting, it goes to an interactive voice response system, which is, I expect, designed for people who can't um, speak or are in a situation where they're not able to, um, for instance, if they're fallen, and um, the voice response system will ask the caller to pr- press 55, so 55, if they needed emergency help. Um, the question's asked three times, and if there's no reply, the caller's disconnected. Um, if the caller does press 55, the call is connected to the police. Now, if that goes unanswered, so if a victim's called and they're pressed by five, the police call and they can't answer it, then um, the police will send a patrol car to the address associated with the phone number. So that's the billing address. So it's really important that people make sure they've updated their billing address with their um, mobile phone provider so that if they need to use that service, they can. Um, Something else that I I think a lot of people aren't aware of, Chrissy, is police protection notices. I wondered Mm -hmm. if you could just explain for people what those are and how they work, because I know um, our courts in Brisbane have been encouraging people to um, use police protection notices rather than putting themselves in a dangerous situation of having to come to court or if if they can't come to court to, to make an application. Sure. So police protection notice is used where the police are actually called out, for example, to the home and the police assess that um, a party is in need of protection and therefore a police protection notice can be issued. Um, And there's also ouster orders that the police can apply for or a cooling off period for the the perpetrator of violence to be removed from the home as well, often just for a temporary um, amount of time. I guess in COVID now that is becoming more difficult as well because where does the perpetrator go in that instance? Um, but the benefit of the police protection notice is that the police are called and the police go to the effort of preparing the application and throughout the process the police pr- um, prosecutor will act for you rather than you having to um, bring your own um, application for a protection order and then for example hire a lawyer um, to then prepare all the material so the benefit is that the police will act on your behalf. Mm-hmm. I think a practical risk at the moment is if that occurs and you're both living under the same house and the police are called, um, there could be a further risk factor for you if the perpetrator is returned to the house and that's when you should be accessing other domestic violence services to see if there's safe housing available or calling 1-800-RESPECT as well or DV Connect who can help you get some alternative housing because we know by you contacting the police but then you're forced to reside under the same premises even if an order's made that you could still be at increased risk. So housing is a very serious consideration here for um, your safety as well. So there's many different facets that we need to consider. Mm-hmm. And I was reading the directors from the magistrate's court and um, in, for the urgent applications for protection orders, they're encouraging people to go to the police and ask for a police protection notice. So um, you don't necessarily have to get the police to come out to your house. If you can get to a police station, uh, then the magistrate's court is certainly encouraging police to apply to 
for those notices to protect people because I think there's a real awareness amongst our magistrates that this is an increased time of risk for mm. domestic violence. And it's it's playing around, out around the world. Um, there was an increase yeah. in domestic violence in China as a result of um, their lockdown. So it's not an isolated situation at all. No. And I think the risks still with either a police protection notice, and it's an, it's an irony between a police protection notice or a private application for a protection order is the perpetrator, the respondent still needs to be served. So one way or another, he or she's going to find out about that um, application, whether or not the police bring it or you bring it privately as well. Um, so it's so difficult. It really is such a difficult time. It, when if the police had attended a home, though, they had the capacity to remove a perpetrator. So yes, absolutely. I think that we need to make that really clear that it's not yeah. the police turning up saying, "Here's a notice, everybody go off on your merry way." Yeah. Now, if they believe a victim is at risk, they can they can remove the perpetrator. Certainly, so yep, yep, yeah. So. Um, some other risk factors, I might come back to those, Chrissy. Um, yeah. We see a lot of um, discussion online on social media about uh, people drinking more. And yeah. um, I, you know, it, it's, it seems to be a coping mechanism that people are using, yeah. not necessarily a healthy one, but it's the reality. We do have a big drinking culture in Australia. And, um, you know, I see people talking about day drinking uh, once the school's home learning ends and, and all of that. And, and um, for most people, that is a topic that they can joke about. But for domestic violence victims, I imagine if the perpetrator is drinking more, that that's a really potentially scary situation for them. Absolutely. It's a risk factor. So it's likely to increase the occurrence and the severity of the domestic and family violence. So we need to be careful that we never blame alcohol because a person's um, choice to use domestic and family violence is a choice. It is a behaviour they choose. However, it's certainly a risk factor. So alcohol can certainly increase the severity of it and the, um, yeah, the likelihood of occurring and be, being worse. So we've seen that research has come out from the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education that... Um, 70% of Australians are drinking more alcohol than normal during COVID. Wow. That's a that, big increase. Yeah. That's a huge increase, isn't it? Not Massive. that different from the 75% increase in Google searches about domestic violence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't want to be making the mistake of saying eating carrots um, improves your eyesight and, and correlation and causation, but it, I think it is telling that there's an increase in both of those things. There's, um, we're mm -hmm. seeing much more concerning behaviour all round. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then we have another risk factor as well, that unemployment can again be a reason for, for it to be a risk factor. So again, never an explanation or an excuse for domestic violence, but again, it can increase the severity of domestic and family violence. And as we know, we've seen a massive spike in unemployment due to COVID. So there's another risk factor as well that we're dealing with as a society. And I imagine if, if there is unemployment, whether it's the unemployment of the victim or the perpetrator, that that's a, another uh, excuse to exert financial control. Spot on, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And Chrissy, could you talk to us a bit about financial control? Because for me, that seems to be one of the least understood aspects of domestic violence. I have clients who come to me mm -hmm. and I ask them questions about how things um, were managed in their relationship. And I hear these stories of terrible financial control. And people just aren't identifying and often emotional abuse as well. And people just aren't mm. identifying that as domestic violence, maybe because we're using the word violence and maybe abuse mm. 
and control are more appropriate words. Uh, and sometimes it's that light bulb moment for a client to realise that actually that, that stuff was not okay and not normal. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could just talk to us a bit about the non-violent forms of domestic violence yeah. that can sometimes be the worst and lead to violence escalating so quickly post-separation. I think I'm seeing, um, for example, a perpetrator telling, particularly their new spouse, if they're newly engaged or married, you don't need to work, I'll look after you. Already we're setting up a very um, unequal relationship and a dominance as well. Don't worry, I'll look after you. And that's very patriarchal as well, I guess, the, the man looking after the female. What that does is automatically puts this woman, or for example, a woman, in a very unequal position where there is dominance and there's reliance, financial reliance on this other person to provide. So that in itself is an act of power and control and then which can then manifest in financial abuse because that person pulls the strings. They can say, threaten, if you don't do this, I won't be giving you access to money. If you don't give me sex, if you don't clean the house, I control all the money. I can cut off all accounts, which I see very, very often. Or they, they, they're only, for example, the victims only um, provide X amount just for grocery shopping. And that's it. There's not enough for, um, for them to meet any higher needs. It's just getting by so see that manifest quite often in property settlements as well i'm like do we know of any other accounts and they'll, they'll might clients say well i really don't i just wasn't provided with knowledge of any accounts i didn't make any financial decisions i was only given almost an allowance like a child yeah no. i think if if you're not allowed to have your own bank account or your yeah. own credit card that's a sign that there sign. may be something wrong. I mean, and, and let's, I think we, we need to be fair. Um, someone who is financially well off and says, you know what, look, I, I don't want you to work. Um, I don't want, you don't need to, I can provide for you. If that's done in a way where the, the other person has autonomy over their spending yeah. and doesn't have to account for it and, mm -hmm. and isn't scrutinised over every minute purchase and the person mm -hmm. feels like they have the capacity to spend what they want without consequence, that's yeah. not financial abuse exactly. and control. Um, I think we need to be really careful. But mm -hmm. if it's, um, if there's, you know, line by line scrutiny of what you've spent and criticism um, asking for receipts for absolutely everything. There's a difference between budgeting and scrutiny. And exactly. uh, I think we need to, it, people often don't understand that there's a line that's crossed and it's, mm -hmm. and it's about where one person has control, control. and the other yeah. person doesn't have autonomy. Exactly. And that's when we assess a relationship. Was the relationship equal in all other ways? And was it equal in terms of, like you say, accessibility, knowing the PIN codes, having access to all the cards and being able to spend? That's very different to not knowing the cards, not having a PIN and being given an allowance, being told this is all you can spend and transferring X amount or giving only a cash payment. That's very yeah. different too. One person's working, looking after the family and, and the relationship is equal. It's not unhealthy. There's not a power imbalance in any other ways. And that, that is very different. Yeah. And leading on from that is um, mm. in terms of being able to have employment is where pregnancy is used as a form of um, control in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And we often see that domestic violence actually peaks during pregnancy as well. And at the time of a baby being born. So that pregnancy is actually another risk factor. It's one of the most dangerous times you know, through evidence for women as well. And people using um pregnancies keeping people pregnant multiple pregnancies mm -hmm. so that they can't be independent so that they can't just be become independent. increasingly reliant upon the perpetrator 
exactly, absolutely. And that's the difference, I think, when one person creates a reliance um, sort of relationship where they have to rely on you, that's when we're looking at that's a red flag for financial control of financial abuse. Chrissy, I, I wonder if you could talk to us about the ways that you've seen um, co-parenting during COVID-19 being used mm -hmm. as a form of domestic violence. You and I were having a chat offline about that. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that that's something that people might not really be turning their minds to at the moment. And I, I just wonder if you could talk with us about what you've seen mm -hmm. happening. All inquiries to our office where one person has been withholding, when we've looked at that relationship, there's been a history of um, domestic and family violence and controlling and coercive behaviours. For example, I'm not um, allowing you to pick up little Johnny, for example. I'm withholding and we've heard in some instances for six months. So I'm withholding little Johnny for six months. So when we analyse the previous behaviours and the relationships, we see that that can be an act of um, intimidation, control, forcing the other person through the through the justice system, which could be systematic abuse as well. So it certainly is an avenue where we're seeing it manifest in a very different way in a way we haven't seen before. Um, and there's also been some research that came out overnight. The Guardian yesterday in an article um, identified that um, some fathers, so Women's Safety New South Wales um, have done some research and they indicate that some fathers are using the lockdown, as I said, to refuse handover of children. And some are demanding the children to come to their home when the father has flu-like symptoms, um, the program coordinator said. Um, and another domestic violence court advocacy service worker told researchers that mothers are forced to send children to Bala. Better fathers due to family law orders and being unable to or feeling difficult, finding it difficult to vary the orders due to court representative restrictions or I guess the sense of there being restrictions as well. Um, and this organisation said um, out of a survey of 56 domestic violence workers, 40 reported that they had already seen an increase in clients who were experiencing issues in relation to child contact. That's a big, big number. And unfortunately, yeah. we know there's delays with the courts because they're having to do things differently, the family law mm -hmm. courts. Um, and for someone to have to try to bring an application for the return of the child who should be with them, uh, that's a massive thing right now. Uh, massive thing. And, and financially, if they need to fund a lawyer and they're already in financial difficulties because they may have lost their job as well. So people are feeling really disempowered, disempowered and feeling very stuck. Yeah, um, so I think it's um, it's important for us to be aware of the different ways that d domestic violence manifests. And mm. that's what I really wanted us to, to highlight because people need to understand that if they have a friend in this situation or they're in this situation, that it's not okay and people can get help. We've talked about some of the ways you can um, get help. There's the police uh, non-urgent line that Chrissy mentioned earlier. There's 1800RESPECT, uh, which is a website. You can also phone. They're available 24 hours, I believe. Um, yeah. There's also some handy apps that people can download. Uh, there's one called PENDA, P-E-N-D-A, and DAISY. They have resources in them where people can save evidence uh, just make sure that you're doing it safely and that if your perpetrator can get hold of your mobile phone they're not going to see that because that's a, a real problem in itself isn't it Chrissy? Uh, definitely absolutely it's just another practical consideration and we know that um, perpetrators are now using uh, or trying to remove the discard um, victims phones as well so further entrenching them in isolation and trapping them by removing and breaking their phones so if that is happening to you 
speak if you can safely to a domestic violence um, service and they may be able to provide you with another mobile phone that you can hide somewhere really safe that um, the perpetrator doesn't have access to because we are seeing um, an increase in that as well. So mobile phones being broken. So um, to limit access to services. And I, I think it's important that people are aware that um, if you do leave, um, a, a dangerous situation that your phone can be used to track you. Perpetrators don't need to be very sophisticated to be able to do that. So you really need access to a clean phone. Um, I know we have a, a stock of clean phones that's been donated by a women's group that I'm part of. Mm -hmm. And we, um, if someone's leaving, we give them a phone with preloaded apps um, with a SIM card in there so that they can give the number to people, they can contact us. Obviously things are a bit different at the moment, but I, I think it's important that uh, victims also know that if you do need to leave, that the, the Queensland government has made it very clear that leaving and going and taking yourself and your children um, to another place mm -hmm. is not going to be considered a breach of our lockdown requirements. Um, you won't get in trouble for leaving. So if you need to leave and go to mum's, a friend's, a shelter, a hotel, wh wherever you need to go, uh, you will not get in trouble with the police for doing that. And I suspect there may be perpetrators who are holding that over victims' heads, making them yeah. feel like they can't leave, but you can. You will not get in trouble with the police for doing that. Mm -hmm. That's such good advice. That's yeah, so important that people understand because I, I feel there is such a sense of disempowerment just in general. So, and if you're feeling stuck, you do need to know that there are options available and you can leave. Yeah, and I think it probably I'd like to turn now to what people can do um, if they need to reach out for some help or if they want to help someone that they believe is in a bad situation. Mm. And maybe if you could offer some practical tips on, on what people can do to let people know that whether or not they're safe. Yeah, so I've been thinking about just um, in terms of neighbours. So now more than ever, we're all home so we can hear what's happening in the neighbourhood. So if you're a neighbour and you suspect something's happening, happening in a home, well, for one, you should always call the police. If you feel that somebody's in danger, call triple zero. Um, in the past week, we've unfortunately seen a woman that was killed um, and neighbours didn't do anything because there is that belief in society that domestic violence isn't my business, it's a private business. So for one, if you think that something's happening and somebody's in danger, please call the police. If it is safe to speak to your neighbour who's the victim, you may want to say, well, I suspect something's happening. Can we come up with some sort of code word? or something that you can indicate if it's safe for me um, to alert me to it so I can call the police, for example, flash your bedroom light, turn your bedroom light on three times, for example, or if they can um, uh, arrange some sort of text messaging system that wouldn't indicate that they're in, in danger. Um, for example, we've seen on face on Facebook groups, like, I have this makeup line available at the moment, are you interested? And that indicates I'm in danger, can you call the police? So if you're a neighbour, um, be kind, be compassionate, talk to this person if you can see them while you're doing the bins, for example, with, without judgment, be kind and, and, and empower them to say, what can, how can I help you? Can you give me some tips on how I can help you as well? Yeah, and, and family members who might otherwise have caught up with um, their other family members in person to ask mm -hmm. them, um, there's still ways that they can help. For instance, um, during a phone call or a text message, um, they could ask an innocuous question, bearing in mind that the perpetrator could be listening in or reading the phone, um, mm -hmm. a legitimate innocuous question. And the answer to that question could tell 
the family member who's checking on the victim, whether or not the victim is safe or not, you know, mm. could, could ask about, um, you know, um, I need some ideas, ideas for dinner tonight. You know, what do you, what do you reckon I should cook? And mm. beef might be, I'm, I'm safe and chicken might be call the police now. You know, it's yeah. something really, there's, there's, there's an everyday conversation that has code words built into it. And I think um, that's really important because um, asking someone, are you safe? Are you okay? Is really risky because that tells the perpetrator you've been talking about what's happening and increases the risk for the victim. Yeah, definitely. And I think we can make domestic violence is everyone's business. So we can all play a part and do it. Even an SMS exchange like that could save someone's life. So we really need it. It is everyone's business and, and the ramifications could be really positive for that victim in terms of their safety. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as family lawyers, I think there's a few things that we also need to do and, mm. and change the way that we're doing things in this COVID-19 situation. And I wonder if you could just talk about some of the suggestions that you've got there, Chrissy. When you get a new client inquiry, always ask them, is it safe to call you back on this line? Does the perpetrator have access to your emails? Can you change your passwords? What's, yeah, what is the safest method of communicating with you and when and how would you like us to identify ourselves? So we use a mobile number for people that it's unsafe for us to call off our main lines, which are our website numbers. So it'd be easy for the perpetrator to look us up and find out in domestic violence law firm. So for example, we might just say it's just Chrissy or it's Jade or even Cleon, that may be safer than Cleon Legal as well. So empowering the victim, asking them for their tips of what's going to keep them safe and being conscious of it. And it's not just the family lawyers, it's the support staff. And it's the support staff who are really at the front line of this and keeping our clients safe. So they're just yeah. some, some tips, just basic things that everyone should be thinking about. Absolutely. And coming back to the phones again, um, one thing that I really encourage people if they're planning on leaving or they do leave is to get a phone that's on a different platform from the one you've been using. If you've got an iPhone, move to an Android and vice versa, mm -hmm. because each of them have so much account stuff built into them where people can be traced and you might lose your apps for a while until you can safely change back to the other platform. Mm -hmm. But you know, things like your Apple ID or your Google account, they're all mm -hmm. inextricably linked with your mobile phone and just breaking that connection makes it so much harder for the perpetrator to find you. Mm -hmm. But what people often forget about, and I've, I've, been told by a colleague of a horrible situation where um, the perpetrator, sorry, the victim did everything they could to be safe, but the kids brought their iPads mm. and the kids turned them on and then the perpetrator was able to trace the victim because of that. Yeah. So just being really conscious of, of all of those things um, mm. and just being making sure that there's those devices we've got a situation now where the government wants us to download a tracking app so they know where we are um, and there's concerns about the safety of that. Um, that's the kind of um, safety concerns that domestic violence victims live with every day. Every single day, that's right. That sense of being under surveillance and being under surveillance as well. It's horrifying. It's really yeah. scary. Well, Chrissy, today was a difficult topic. Um, it's, um, it's not a good news topic other than to say that there is help out there, but it's a really important topic because you really highlighted a few minutes ago that domestic violence has traditionally been treated as something private. And um, 
people say, you know, there wasn't as much domestic violence in my day and we just sorted it out. No, there was. Yeah, it's just was. that people didn't talk about it. It's time exactly. to bring it out of the shadows mm -hmm. and to recognise it for what it is and that it is a, a choice of a person. We can't blame mental illness or alcohol or unemployment or any of those other things. Oh. Yes, they increase the risks and they might increase the severity of the violence, mm -hmm. but they're not the reason behind it. And I, I think yeah. it's really important important that we do have this conversation and that uh, people, men and women um, around Australia understand that we've got to be talking about this and we have to be asking people if they're okay, particularly during COVID-19. Exactly. And also I think that we don't forget our own privilege as well. I, I'm seeing the hashtag stay home just trending everywhere as well and just being sensitive as well in terms of using that on your social media as well because somebody that's living under the same roof could almost feel a sense of guilt um, or that could be a reason for them not leaving as well like you touched on before as well, you are allowed to leave. If you're unsafe, you can leave your house without um, getting in trouble. So just small things like that as well, because that could go into someone's conscience and they, you know, they feel that they can't leave. I need to stay home. That's the trending yeah. hashtag. But don't forget our privilege as well in being safe and being home. Yeah. And always, if you're not sure if what your experience is, experiencing is domestic violence, 1-800-RESPECT um, are a great service that you can talk yeah. to. And DV Connect is available. They have both a men's line and a women's line. So that regardless of your gender, you can get help if you're a victim or a perpetrator of domestic violence. Well, Chrissy, thank you so much for speaking with me today and um, hopefully we'll be able to catch up in person sometime soon. But um, in the meantime, thank you for all the great work that you're doing to help victims and keep people safe during this time. Thank you so much for having me. I hope it was really helpful. Thank you.